Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's the 1st of June, 1919, the first day of winter, and Sydney is feeling the cold and still in the grip of the Spanish flu, which is putting dozens of people a week into early graves. But life has to go on, and to take their minds off their worries, people flock to the city's many picture theatres. Now the Great War is finished, films mostly come from a place in Los Angeles, California, called Hollywood. There, the big movie factories produce stars who are known and loved all over Australia. Gloria Swanson and Mary Pickford guarantee a good melodrama while you'll reliably bust a gut laughing if you see a Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin show. But the type of movie that's most instantly recognisable as American is the Western. With locally made bushranging movies banned, Australians flock to these cowboy films. Accompanied by the frantic playing of theatre musicians, and sound effects of guns and horses made backstage, these flicks usually end with a good gunslinger shooting it out with a bad man of the Badlands in some barricaded shack. During this first week of winter, Sydney ciders are spoiled for choice of cowboy movie. Top star William Hart is blasting his way through not one, but two films, Staking His Life and Riddle Gorn while his main movie rival, Tom Mix, is pumping bullets into bad guys in a sagebrush saga called Fame and Fortune. What Sydney filmgoers can't imagine is that they're about to become the audience for a real-life shootout. A shootout between a crazed desperado, an army of lawmen, and a lone American cowboy who might well have stepped off 
the silver screen. I'm Michael Adams and this is part one of the Forgotten Australia episode Arizona Ryan and the Sydney Shootout. The only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Most Australians wouldn't necessarily disagree with this statement, but the vast majority wants the good guy or girl with the gun to also be wearing a police uniform and even then to only use the gun as a last resort. In America though, pro-gun activists invoke this motto to support their arguments against gun control almost as often as they invoke the Constitution of the United States. While the Second Amendment might be open to judicial interpretation, the good guy with a gun concept carries the unmistakable whiff of vigilante-style Western frontier justice. The idea raises a lot of concerns, one of which is this. Who decides whether the good guy with a gun is actually, well, a good guy? In June 1919, this question wasn't asked when a new sheriff sauntered into Sydney to save the day with a six-shooter. Now, for the first time, you're about to hear the true story of Arizona Ryan and the Sydney shootout. While it's now a sought-after suburb of boutique pubs, cafes and expensive real estate, back in 1919, Surrey Hills was a slum, with the Sun newspaper describing it as a discreditable rookery, the like of which many people might believe had ceased to exist in Sydney. About an hour after sunset on Sunday the 1st of June, Li Hin, a 40-year-old Chinese cabinet maker, walked out of his dilapidated wooden cottage at number 6 List Lane and threaded his way through the narrow streets and alleys lined with tenement buildings. On his way, Li Hin encountered a neighbour and he and this woman exchanged their usual polite words. The man was, in her estimation, a placid and inoffensive character. Li Hin was next seen a few blocks away at about 7.30pm on the footpath at 86 Wentworth Avenue. He was acting erratically, throwing little firecrackers, and he bumped into a returned digger named Dave Sterling who crossed the street to get away from him. There, Dave Sterling watched as this agitated Chinese man ran up the narrow stairs that led to the first floor Church of Christ and Chinese Mission School. Inside this church hall, Rose Dyson, a 31-year-old Caucasian woman, was by the windows that overlooked the street conducting a service for about two dozen mostly Chinese worshippers. Reaching the mission's single door, Li Hin set off a smoke bomb on the stairs before tossing a second incendiary into the hall. Then he stormed inside and, with a revolver in each hand, began firing wildly. In the smoke-filled hall, Li Hin's first fusillade didn't find any targets, as terrified worshippers ran for the windows and piled out onto the awnings. Eliza Priddeth, secretary of the Chinese mission, tried to stop Li Hin, but he pushed her aside and started shooting out the windows. 
Two Chinese men, David Wong Young and Ernest Lin, were shot, and another man named Mr. Honan was also hit. Then Lee Hin took aim at Rose Dyson and fired point blank into her back. She threw up her arms and fell. Rose Dyson had been preaching a minute earlier and now she and other worshippers lay in pools of their own blood. Lee Hin ran back inside through the smoke-filled hall and bolted down the stairs. With only a flesh wound to his hip, Mr Honan gave chase, as did some of the other men. People on Wentworth Avenue who'd seen smoke pouring from the church had alerted the fire brigade and a fire engine now arrived just as Lee Hin ran from the front door. He shot at the startled firemen. They ducked, bullets sizzling overhead, and Lee Hin began blasting away at another fire department vehicle as it pulled up. Then he ran down Wentworth Avenue, chased by an angrily shouting crowd. As Lee Hin fled, he turned and shot at these pursuers, and several people went down with bullet wounds. The gunman turned into Hunt Street, pausing again to fire at the crowd, and then bolted up Campbell Street and along East Street before disappearing into List Lane. The crowd gathered at the entrance to this dark and forbidding alley, which was no more than eight feet across, not knowing where the shooter might be hiding. Ten minutes passed before two men were game enough to venture into List Lane. They didn't get more than ten yards in when six gunshots rang out and they both went down wounded. A Mr Irvine, standing back with the crowd, felt a bullet whiz by him and hit his friend Mr Goldberg. The crowd scattered. Mr Irvine put his heavily bleeding friend into a taxi and sent him to hospital before returning to List Lane to help the two wounded men. In just a quarter of an hour, previously unassuming cabinet maker Lee Hin had shot 14 people. The Sun newspaper reported, the casualty room at the Sydney hospital looked like an army casualty clearing station. Rose Dyson was expected to survive her abdominal gunshot wound. More seriously injured were 33-year-old railway fireman John Hennessy, who'd taken a bullet through the lung, and 42-year-old Ernest Lynn, a Mossman greengrocer who'd been hit in the throat. The most critical victim, though, was 38-year-old David Wong Young, also a Mossman greengrocer who'd taken two bullets in the chest and one in each leg, and he would later die from these injuries. Police Sergeant Walter Asquith and a constable arrived at the Chinese Mission Hall at around 7.45pm and were told what had happened by Dave Sterling and other witnesses. Sergeant Asquith was told who was responsible and which way he'd fled. A few blocks away inside his little wooden cottage, Lee Hin was preparing for a siege. His house which had just two rooms and a kitchen at the rear, was situated midway along List Lane on a rise, giving him a commanding view of both ends of the alley. He could see and shoot anyone approaching his citadel. Lee Hin nailed boards over his front windows, leaving slots through which he could fire, and he was prepared to do a lot more shooting. 
He had two 22 caliber revolvers, which held five and seven bullets respectively, and a 32 caliber automatic pistol, which held nine cartridges. That meant Lee Hin could fire 21 times before he needed to reload, and he had boxes and boxes of bullets. Sergeant Asquith followed the trail to Campbell Street, where he peered over a fence into List Lane and saw Lee Hin lurking in the darkness. Lee Hin saw him and fired three shots. Sustaining a minor wound, the police officer returned fire, but Lee Hin made it inside his house and began shooting back through a window. Sergeant Asquith and the constables on the scene cordoned off the area before relinquishing command to their boss, Inspector Doig, who arrived with yet more police. They surrounded the house and took up positions in neighbouring homes that had been evacuated. A furious battle raged as police fired over fences, from windows and from roofs. Lee Hin gave as good as he got, keeping the police ducking with bursts of revolver and pistol fire. Police wondered how, with so many bullets ripping through the little wooden house, Lee Hin had managed to remain unwounded, and they came to the conclusion he might be sheltering in the house's brick fireplace as bullets smashed through the walls. Whenever the firing died down and police tried to advance, Lee Hin would start shooting again. Meanwhile, the number of onlookers grew. From all over Surrey Hills, the curious gathered, and as the news spread across Sydney, more people arrived, the crowd growing so big that it hampered the police who had to devote time to managing the throng. With so many bullets flying, being a spectator was dangerous. A man who'd recently returned from the Western Front was watching the show when a bullet drilled through his hat. And a sailor who jumped over a fence for a better look had to be pulled to safety by police as Lee Hin's bullets splintered palings right behind him. According to the Daily Telegraph, there was a vigilante spirit in the air, with return diggers firing revolvers at the house and even boys with pea shooters taking pot shots in the hope of bagging Lee Hin. As the night wore on, every so often a rumour that the gunman had gotten free would ripple through the crowd, causing people to panic and scatter before their curiosity saw them clump together again. Just after midnight, a fire brigade officer arrived with a large electric searchlight, which he gave to the police so they could shine it on the house. But it couldn't be used because any operator would be in Lee Hin's direct line of fire. By 2am, several thousand people had congregated in the streets around the besieged house. The Daily Telegraph reported that Dave Sterling, the returned digger who'd seen Lee Hin begin his rampage, was in the crowd and took it upon himself to end the siege. Remembering that a soldier mate had brought back a bottle of poison gas from the war, Dave sent him to fetch it. The two men affixed the cork bottle of poison gas to a long piece of wire tied to a clothes prop. They then pushed it through a gap in one of Lee Hin's barricaded windows and twisted the wire to uncork the bottle. Coughing was heard from inside the house and for a while Lee Hin didn't fire his guns, but then he started blasting away again. Now the police tried to burn him out, throwing blazing sacks soaked in kerosene against the walls of the house. 
While firing his guns, Lee Hin somehow managed to put them out. At daylight, the police and fire brigade settled on a new approach, water, and a big fire engine was brought into the narrow streets. Two firemen, Richard Ford and George Young, trained a high pressure hose on the wooden shack's windows, knocking part of the barricades down and pouring tons of water into the house. It seemed the assassin must be drowned, reported the Sydney Morning Herald. But Lee Hin wasn't drowned and he fired a succession of shots. Fireman Richard Ford went down with a gunshot to the leg, while his comrade George Young took a bullet in the arm. These wounded men were evacuated and taken to Sydney Hospital. Other firemen took their places, trying to flood the cottage, though its elevation meant that much of the water poured back out into the lane, turning it into a muddy river. In addition to the newspaper reporters on the scene, Paramount's newsreel crew had also arrived. Their cameras saw a battlefield. Houses all along List Lane were bullet-ridden, their windows shattered. Lee Hin had now fired more than 200 rounds. The crowd was still increasing every minute, with the streets blocked with lorries, carts, barrows and motor cars as more and more people rushed towards Surrey Hills to, in the words of the Sun newspaper, see the fun. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. John Walker, Superintendent of Police and Chief of Sydney's Detectives, had arrived to take charge of the standoff. At around 9.30am, he was in a backyard conferring with two of his men, Sergeant Smith and Detective Leary, when a man approached. He was middle-aged, about 5'10", sturdily built with brown eyes and brown hair. He was utterly unremarkable, except that he wore a broad-brimmed cowboy-style hat. I'm a great gunman, this man drawled in an American accent. Give me a regular gun and I'll do this job. I've done this before in Texas. Superintendent Walker told the American that his services weren't needed. I can do this, the American persisted. I've done it in Texas. Superintendent Walker explained that there were plenty of police, many of whom had already volunteered to rush the house, but Walker didn't want to risk losing men. Lee Hin was clearly determined to fight on, but he also wasn't going anywhere. Sooner or later, he'd run out of ammunition or food or he'd need to sleep. Just minutes later, as firemen renewed their attempt to wash Lee Hin from his house, they lost control of their high-pressure hose and people scattered as it whipped around spraying water. Suddenly, the American in the cowboy hat was in the centre of the action, ducking through the gate into Lee Hin's yard and crouching beneath one of the windows. You see, he called to the shock police, I'm here, give me a gun and I'll do for him. 
Superintendent Walker realised the American was lucky not to have been shot already. But if he tried to move from the spot, or Lee Hin fired out the window at him, he was as good as dead. The man needed to be able to protect himself. So Superintendent Walker ordered Sergeant Smith, who had two revolvers, to throw one to the American. What the police saw next surprised them, though given what the American had already said, it probably shouldn't have. The man coolly checked the revolver was loaded, cocked the weapon and peered inside the house. Then he jumped up on the windowsill and disappeared inside. In that dark front room, the American didn't see anyone. Keeping the revolver close to his body, he walked into the next room, which was also empty. Hearing the police coming into the house behind him, he signalled for quiet as he crept forwards into the kitchen. That's when he saw, just a few feet away, a sheet of plywood propped in a dark corner and a hand with a revolver poking up from above this flimsy shield. Lee Hin jumped up and fired as the American dropped to one knee, two bullets flying harmlessly over his head. He returned fire, hitting the Chinese man in the neck and then in the shoulder. Lee Hin went down with a scream. Then the American fired four more times. Behind him, Sergeant Smith and Detective Leary came in, expecting to see the cowboy dead, but in the American's words, the show was all over. Walking out of the cottage, with word already spreading, the American was given a tremendous ovation by the crowd. In five minutes, this man had done what half Sydney's police had failed to do in 15 hours. But public adulation was just getting started. The American was Albert Herbert Ryan, and before Lee Hin's body had even begun to cool, this cowboy was giving colourful interviews to every newspaper reporter who asked. The Sydney Morning Herald told its readers, Ryan is a typical-looking Western American. He was described as a big, square-jawed man, who carried a business card that simply read, Albert H. Ryan, anywhere, everywhere. Albert told reporters that he'd been born in Indianapolis, Indiana, and that he'd learned marine engineering while with the US Navy during the Spanish-American War. Since then, he'd travelled the world, getting into adventures. Though he no longer mentioned Texas, he said he'd spent a heap of time in Arizona and had served as a deputy sheriff in Los Angeles. I used to feel I wasn't dressed up if I didn't have a gun with me, just the same as if I haven't got a collar on, he said. Albert had arrived in Sydney from California just six months ago, having worked his way to Australia aboard the motor schooner Carmen. So how had he found himself at List Lane that morning? Well, he didn't just happen to be there. No, sir. Albert had awoken that morning and read in the newspapers that a raging battle was going on in Surrey Hills. I went down there this morning looking for excitement and I asked the police for a real gun to take a chance on him, he said. He recounted how he'd gone into the house and fought it out with Lee Hin. Then I jumped in right close, 
he said, and pumped the rest of the gun into his head to save a trial and expense. The Sun's reporter asked the American if he thought it was unlucky to kill a Chinaman. Ryan said he wasn't worried about his fortunes. I've been game enough to back my luck in getting married three times, he said. The latest Mrs. Ryan, he explained, was a 20-year-old Irish lass named Ethel Geelan, who he'd met right here in Sydney in March. I advertised on Wednesday, got a reply on Monday, replied myself on Tuesday, met the girl on Wednesday, took her for a walk on Thursday, and married her on Friday, he explained. Albert's only regret was that he was at present unemployed, with the Australian maritime strike that had been going on all year playing havoc with the livelihoods of men who work the sea. The Sydney Morning Herald's reporter suggested that he work as a police officer. The police tell me I'm too old, he said with a dejected air. If I get work to do, I will stay here. The newspapers quickly dubbed Albert Arizona Ryan. That he seemed like silver screen cowboy hero William Hart wasn't lost on anyone. As the Sun newspaper remarked, sure enough, out of the 700,000 people in Sydney, out of thin air comes the man who is most like Bill, himself in style and actions. Mr. Albert Arizona Ryan, late deputy sheriff of Los Angeles, where they make most of the pictures. The sudden appearance of Mr. Ryan on the spot at the precise moment makes it look as if the whole affair had been stage managed by some other enterprising spirit from Los Angeles. Life seems to be learning from the movies. And on the night after the shooting, Arizona Ryan actually was entertaining movie fans, given an exclusive engagement to appear at Paramount's three picture theatres in Newcastle. There, dressed in his cowboy clothes, he narrated the company's newsreel that showed List Lane, the tumble-down tenements, the shot-up buildings and the spots where Sergeant Asquith was wounded and where the fireman was shot. The film also showed police guarding the scene and the very room in which Arizona Ryan had blown Lee Hin's brains out just the previous morning. Come and hear this daredevil cowboy tell you how he turned the tables on Mr. Chow, read ads for the program. He will exhibit the gun with which he administered leaden pills to the Chinaman. Meant to be a two-night engagement, Arizona Ryan was held over by popular demand for an additional two evenings. Not only was Arizona making some coin from the newsreel, but the police had proposed that he be given a £50 reward for killing Lee Hin. While that's about $6,000 today, back then it was equivalent to what he would have earned in four months. As celebrated as the killing was, there still needed to be an inquest into Lee Hin and his death, and this was held on Thursday the 12th of June at Sydney's City Coroner's Court. The coroner learned only a little about the dead man. His brother-in-law, Yin Poi, spoke through a translator to say that the deceased was married, that his wife and two daughters lived in China, and though he'd been a man of temperate habits, he'd sometimes seemed a little silly in his head. 
But if the coroner had been reading the Sun newspaper, he would have learned that Lee Hin's rampage was possibly an act of romantic revenge. The newspaper claimed that the word in the Chinese community was that Lee Hin had made overtures to three young church women and that he'd been rebuffed. On a previous occasion, he disturbed the congregation by shouting and singing discordantly, which had led to him being told he was no longer welcome. The church's superintendent denied the story, saying that no such sinful shenanigans took place in the mission. Whatever Lee Hin's motivation, there was no doubt during the coronial inquest as to what killed him, with a doctor testifying the deceased had several bullet wounds in his body, two more in his neck and two more in his head. There was no doubt about who had killed him either, with police superintendent John Walker telling how Albert Ryan had made his initial approach and then forced his hand. This top cop also repeated that Albert had initially claimed to have done this sort of work before in Texas, though this discrepancy wasn't explored in the court. Superintendent Walker praised Albert's bravery, though he could hardly do otherwise given that he was the man who'd ordered that Albert be given a gun. Of course, the star of the show was Arizona Ryan himself, who got to tell his story all over again, entertaining the court mightily with his drawl, his colourful expressions and his elaborated accounts of his previous adventures. He told the court, It was like this. I read there was a war on down near the Haymarket, so I went down. I wanted to get as near to the frontline trenches as I could. The coroner asked, You're a good gunman? Arizona responded, I'm a fair shot. I've been a deputy sheriff. I was in the American Navy in the Spanish-American War, in the Revolution in Nicaragua, and in 1913, I was mixed up in the Mexican Revolution. He told how he'd asked for a gun, been told no, taken his chance, gone into the List Lane house, and only avoided being shot because he made his quick drop to the floor. He fired two shots and had as good a chance to kill me as I had to kill him, said Ryan. It was man to man, and I emptied my gun into him. The coroner asked, The Chinaman was dead when he was brought out, wasn't he? Sure, I made a certainty of that. He was probably dead after the first two shots, but I fired a few more to make sure of him. The coroner told Arizona he was plucky. Arizona replied, I've hopped into more dangerous spots than that. I've tackled some knotty problems in the States. Once I chased a man up a river in a boat for miles, but the beggar committed suicide before I could get him. The coroner commended the American for his courage and bravery. Arizona said that he believed it was the duty of everyone to help the police and others to keep law and order in their country. Using a racial slur, Arizona said his only intention had been to help the police take the Chinese gunman alive. But if that was the case, why had he emptied his gun into Lee Hin? That was a question the coroner didn't pose. Instead, the coroner said, It is desirable, if possible, of course, to effect an arrest without taking a life, but circumstances in this case were different. The coroner's verdict was that Lee Hin had died of the effects of a bullet wound of the head 
justifiably inflicted upon him by one Albert Herbert Ryan in his own defence while voluntarily assisting the police in the execution of their duty. Reporters, the police, the coroner, the newsreel people, picture show owners and the general public, they'd all fallen hard for Arizona Ryan. No one was about to send a telegram to California or Arizona or Texas to confirm any of the stories he'd told. But a century later, in the era of digitised newspapers and genealogical databases, it's possible to come up with a much clearer picture of Albert Herbert Ryan. In part two of this episode, we'll answer the question, who was this good guy with a gun? I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you've enjoyed this episode so far, I'd love it if you could leave a review or rating. And don't forget to subscribe so that you get every Forgotten Australia episode as soon as it's released. For more stories, photos and information about this and other episodes, go to ForgottenAustralia.com. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.